Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got my sister, Katrina, sitting in. How are you doing, Katrina, my special guest star? (laughs) I'm doing great. Excellent. Well, I've got a jam-packed show for you today. Are you ready to go? I am so ready. All right, let's do it. First case for the day. So Darcy and I covered off on a case a few weeks back about a woman who um, had DNA that was collected as part of a rape case, and they actually used it to arrest this woman. They used the DNA to arrest her on a separate charge, and I guess she's suing San Francisco now. So let me just give you a little bit of background on this. The title of the article is Woman Whose Rape DNA Led to Her Arrest Sues San Francisco. And Darcy and I both knew this was going to happen after we heard about this. But a rape victim whose DNA from her sexual assault case was used by San Francisco police to arrest her in an unrelated property crime has now filed a lawsuit against the city. Right. Surprise, surprise. Mm Mm-hmm. During a search of San Francisco Police Department's crime lab database, the woman's DNA was tied to a burglary in late 2021. Her DNA has been collected and stored in a system as part of a 2016 domestic violence and sexual assault case. The then-district attorney, Chelsea Bowden, said in February in a shocking revelation that raised privacy concerns, this is a government overreach of the highest order using the most unique and personal thing that we have, our genetic code, without our knowledge to try and connect us to a crime, says the woman's attorney. The revelation prompted a national outcry from advocates, law enforcement, legal experts, and lawmakers. Advocates say the practice could affect victims' willingness to come forward to law enforcement authorities. Federal law already prohibits the inclusion of a victim's DNA in the National Combined DNA Index System, or CODIS, There is no corresponding law in California to prohibit local law enforcement databases from retaining victims' profiles and searching them for years later for entirely different purposes. California lawmakers last month approved a bill that would prohibit using the DNA profiles collected by police from sexual assault survivors and other victims for any purpose other than aiding in identifying the perpetrator, which is a long time coming. But local law enforcement agencies would also be prohibited from retaining and then searching victim DNA to incriminate them in unrelated crimes under this legislation, which is pending before Governor Gavin Newsom. The attorney for the woman has said the report was found among hundreds of pages of evidence against a woman who has recently been charged with a felony property crime. After learning the source of the DNA evidence, the attorney dropped the felony property crime charges against the woman. The police department's crime lab stopped the practice shortly after receiving a complaint from the district attorney's office and formally changed its operating procedure to prevent the misuse of DNA collected from sexual assault victims. Police have said in a meeting in March that they had discovered 17 crime victim profiles, 11 of them from rape kits that were matched as potential suspects using crime victims databases during unrelated investigations, they believe the only person arrested from this, though, was the woman who has filed this lawsuit. She filed it under the alias of Jane Doe to protect her privacy, and the Associated Press generally does not name people who say they have been sexually assaulted unless they choose to be named. 
California allows local law enforcement crime labs to operate their own forensic databases that are separate from federal and state databases. The law also lets municipal labs perform forensic analysis, including DNA profiling, and use those databases without regulation by state or others. It's a really problematic case because there's already a reluctance of victims to come forward to report these crimes in many cases because they fear for their lives from the people that they are accusing. They fear for judgment. And it's been, uh, it's taken women a long time to get to the point where we are now, where we are starting to be aware of our protections and able to come forward with a lot of these uh, rape cases. And now that they're starting, you know, potentially to use these to um, as incriminating evidence to convict people of unrelated crimes was just shocking at the very least. So I think this case has really sums it up in that California did it wrong and now they're taking steps to correct that mistake and prevent the use of that DNA for anything other than the um, the rape crimes that they are that the DNA is attached to. So she was a rape victim. Yeah. They took her DNA and put it into a separate database that's not the federal, the state database, and they used it to convict her of a property-related burglary. They used her victim's DNA that was supposed to be used to find her perpetrator and prove that she was raped as a way to convict her of burglary. Police should be able to find their own evidence to convict of these non-related crimes. They should not be using DNA evidence from a rape victim to convict somebody on a separate and unrelated charge. It's unconstitutional at the very least. And it's just morally wrong at the very most. So not to mention the chilling effect that it would have, and we spoke about this in the last episode, the chilling effect that it would have on rape victims potentially coming forward to report their perpetrators. So it's a a messy, messy thing. But um, let's move on to the next case. Okay. Um, this is, hang on. And I don't know if you heard about this one. So this was the Eliza Fletcher case. This Mm -hmm. jogger who was murdered recently. This article came out a few days ago, but it's new details surrounding the death of Eliza Fletcher are released. Um, new details were released recently surrounding the abduction and murder of Eliza Fletcher on September 5th, the Memphis police department, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation and the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI, the ATF Homeland Security and the Shelby County Sheriff's Office Search and Rescue searched for Eliza Fletcher near East Pearson Avenue and Victor Street based on data collected by the FBI just after 5 p.m. The agency searched the area of East Pearson Avenue to the 1500 block of Victor Street. Officials walked northbound from East Pearson Avenue on Victor Street, and they noticed high grass south of the vacant residence on the 1600th block of Victor Street. According to the affidavit, the officers noticed car tracks in the grass adjacent to the driveway of the address on Victor, and the officers smelled an odor of decay. Officials panned out and walked to the rear of the location. A set of steps were noticed just north of the rear driveway and immediately to the right of the steps, they located an unresponsive woman lying on the ground and notified the search team members. The scene investigation revealed that the woman fit the description of Eliza Fletcher. Law enforcement from the various agencies that were near the location canvassed the surrounding area just after 6 p.m. and detectives located a discarded trash bag about 100 feet just north of the home on South Orlean Street, where officials earlier indicated that Cleotha Abston had been with his brother. 
The bag contained purple running shorts that were consistent with the ones Eliza Fletcher was last seen wearing the day she was abducted. Officials researched surveillance videos during the time of the incident, and they saw cameras located on the 1300th block of Cumming Street captured the suspect's car exiting this area. The suspect's car was then captured on the camera located at Kerr Avenue and Clancy Street traveling westbound. The car then turned southwest onto Havana Street. The camera located at the 1600th block of Havana Street captured the car turning south on Marjorie Street. The car proceeded to turn westbound onto Pearson Avenue and the medical examiner with the West Tennessee Regional Forensic Center arrived shortly thereafter and pronounced the victim deceased. She was positively identified as Fletcher. The suspect, Cleotha Abstin, now faces additional charges of first-degree murder and first-degree murder in perpetuation of kidnapping. The first court appearance for this man, he mentioned that he could not afford to make his bond and could not afford an attorney. According to the authorities, sandals were found near Fletcher's water bottle and cell phone after she was abducted. DNA on the sandals matched Abstin, and Abstin was seen wearing them the night before Fletcher's abduction. An arrest affidavit for Abstin also claims his cell phone was found to be in the area of Central Avenue and Zach Curlin, where Fletcher was abducted around the same time that the mother of two boys said St. Mary teacher, teacher was kidnapped. Court records show that Abstin was previously charged with aggravated kidnapping in, in June of 2000. He was sentenced to 24 years, but was eligible for release after 85% of that sentence was served. On Tuesday, Fletcher's family read a statement talking about how heartbroken they were. The mayor also released a statement saying that I hope whoever is guilty of this heinous crime and any other such crimes is removed from society and is punished to the fullest extent of the law. In any case, this very much reminded me of the case of Molly Tibbetts, who was another jogger who was grabbed as she was running and was kidnapped and, and killed. It doesn't seem as though this is that different. This is a mother of two small children who was out for a jog. I think it was 4.30 in the morning. It was an early run. She was an avid runner and she had gone out into her neighborhood for a run. And this guy just found her, was an opportunist, grabbed her and killed her. And it's a shocking and kind of horrific sort of case. It very much reminds me of the Molly Tibbetts case. And Darcy and I spoke about this in great length when we talked about the Molly Tibbetts case and what sorts of things we can do to protect ourselves as women in those sorts of instances. It sucks first and foremost that we have to think about those sort of things so we can't go out and just take a, a jog without being accosted or hurt or killed. But again, you know, make sure that you're not out there running with headphones, make sure that you're always aware of what's going on, try to run with a partner if you can, I mean, there's just so many things that we talked about that in no way are we trying to victim shame or victim blame this poor woman who lost her life in a, just a horrific way. But it's just, it's awful. It's terrifying to think that you could go out for a jog in the morning thinking you're perfectly safe and have somebody grab you. There is so many things as a woman that we have to be scared of. I mean, it's unfair. I think there's less fear for men. But... We definitely, as women, have to educate ourselves on how to stay safe in those situations. You can't, unfortunately, we cannot just go for a run in the dark or by ourselves with our headphones and, and, and be safe. 
It's yeah. unfortunate because there's so many crimes out there where that has happened. I've seen so much. It's awful and just terrifying. And, you know, I, I want to make it clear that by no means are we trying to say that this woman was in any way to blame or at fault for what happened to her. But like, let's, let's band together and help each other be safe in uh-huh. these sorts of instances if we can and share the tips, you know, that we have to, to do this. It's just, it's shocking and horrifying that this young mother who had so much promise is now gone because some creep. And the thing is, he was already in jail, 24 years in prison, let out early and just what turns around and letting these people out, <clears throat> turns around really and does it again. I don't know. Uh, clearly, they thought he wasn't a threat, and they let him go. And then he turned well, around and did it is. again. I, I just am disgusted by this. I feel like how many times do you see these crimes where somebody was already in prison, sentenced for a certain amount of time, they get out early on good behavior, and they go out and they kill somebody. That life could have been saved if they would have just... It's think, not like you're going to suddenly be cured because you were in, did some time. It definitely speaks to the the failures of our criminal justice system, for sure. And how we don't, there is no rehabilitation in the way our system is designed. There is no way to create a prevention method and to help these people cure themselves. There really isn't. It's It's a system by which we punish those who have committed crimes, and there is no plan to rehabilitate, even though we claim that's what we're doing. So it's just, it's it's horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. And it really, we have a lot of room to reform and we have a long way to go before we get to the point where we treat these prisoners in a manner where they can be let loose with the rest of society and and be productive members of society and no danger to anyone anymore. I I don't feel like people like that can be rehabilitated. I think psychologically speaking, people like that who have have the ability to do that in the first place are not going to recover. I don't think that that happens. Well, I mean, there are many countries in the world where they do believe that that is possible. Canada. Um, I mean, there are many countries that don't put somebody in prison for life if they murder somebody, they believe that they can be rehabilitated and released back to society. So the U.S. is definitely in the middle, I think, as far as that's concerned. But in any case, I'm going to jump over and talk about the main case for the day. I'm going to talk about Amy Lynn Bradley. And I don't know if you know who that is. Uh, no. So she disappeared on a cruise ship. So first and foremost, I want to talk a little bit about cruise ship disappearances and that sort of thing. Since the year 2000, about 200 passengers have gone missing from cruise ships. It is the cruise line's responsibility to keep passengers safe and to investigate disappearances. So if the cruise ship can't find the missing person after a reasonable amount of time, the cruise ship has to go back to the last known location where the person is seen And the cruise line's employees who fail to perform these actions or act negligently in the events leading up to the disappearance may be held accountable in a court of law. There are some statistics with respect to people falling overboard on cruise ships. Not everyone who fell overboard died. Approximately 10 of those who went overboard since 2000 were rescued. And one person survived in the water for more than 18 hours. Oh, my God. Most of those who fell... Yeah, right? 
Most of those who fell overboard on cruise ships were on the last day of their cruise vacation. Isn't that horrific? Um, and then a predominance of residents from Florida and California have fallen overboard while on cruise ships. And then passengers aboard Carnival Cruise Line ships are more likely to suffer from falling overboard than any other cruise line. Can you imagine going on a trip and then just, like, falling off the boat? Like, your trip is totally, completely ruined. And you have an expectation of having enjoying yourself on your vacation and then falling and dying, like, off the boat. Like It's crazy. Another source says that around 400 people have gone missing from cruise ships since 2000. That's um, crazy. And this includes both cruise ship passengers and members of the crew. About 30 million people enjoy cruises each year prior to the pandemic. Um, but there's no single source that collects data from people who disappear. About 19 people on average go missing each year. And this is out of the many millions of cruise ship passengers that travel aboard one of 314 cruise ships that sail the oceans each year. There are a lot of reasons why people might disappear. They may have fallen overboard or they may have jumped off or they may have simply left the ship when it was in port. There have also been some rare instances of people who have been thrown off the ship. When somebody goes missing and is known to have gone overboard, the ship has to circle around, as I mentioned earlier, and try to rescue them. About one in four people survive going overboard. You've been on a cruise ship. How easy is it to fall overboard? I have never been on a cruise. I thought you have been. No. Okay. So in any case, it's a, a tricky sort of a thing. So let's talk about Amy Lynn Bradley. Amy Lynn Bradley was born May 12th, 1974 in Petersburg, Virginia. She resided in Chesterfield County, Virginia and attended Longwood University. She graduated with a degree in physical education. So she was very athletic she had a scholarship in basketball and was known for her strong swimming abilities. And she had previously worked as a lifeguard. Prior to going on this cruise with her parents, she was planning to start a new job at a computer consulting firm after she graduated. So this was a celebratory event. I believe her parents won these tickets and they were cruise tickets on the Royal Caribbean international cruise ship Rhapsody of the Seas in route for Curacao which is a Dutch Caribbean island under the Kingdom of Netherlands. On March 21st, 1998, Amy boarded this cruise ship with her family that was headed to Curacao. Prior to the disappearance of Amy, she and her brother Brad decided to stay up late dancing at a Mardi Gras-themed party on the ship. They drank alcohol and hung out with the ship's band, Blue Orchid. So there was one of the band members, Alistair Douglas. He was also known as Yellow. And he had been known to have been drinking with Amy the night that she disappeared. And he claimed that he left the party around 1 a.m. But at that time, a videographer named Chris Fenwick was able to capture the moment where Amy and Yellow were dancing. So he was taking pictures of partygoers and passengers on the ship, which is not uncommon. They have photographers that take pictures for the, the um, cruise ship guests so that they can have memories of their vacation. Brad, Amy's brother, decided to head back to the family cabin around 3.30 in the morning. So there is a computerized door lock system that recorded Brad, Amy's brother, returning to the cabin that he shared with Amy around 3.35 a.m. 
It is also known that Amy followed about five minutes later. When he was questioned, Brad reported that he and his sister had been sitting on the suite's balcony and had talked a little bit before he went back inside to go to sleep. And Amy told him, I'm going to stay awake for a little bit longer and and then go to sleep a little bit later. Between about 5.15 a.m. and 5.30 on March 24th, 1998, Amy's dad woke up and went to check on his kids. He saw, or he thought he saw, Amy still sleeping in the lounge chair on the cabin balcony. So he's like, she's fine. I see her. She's sleeping on the balcony. She must have fallen asleep. You know, they're out partying and drinking. She's probably real tired. He told the local papers that he could see her legs from the hips down. And then he went back to sleep. The balcony door was closed when he got up again at 6 a.m., She was missing, along with her cigarettes and lighter. He later said, quote, I left to try and go up and find her. When I couldn't find her, I didn't really know what to think, because it was very much unlike Amy to leave and not tell us where she was going. Her dad then searches the common areas of the cruise ship, and he wakes up the rest of the family to tell them that Amy is missing, and this happened around 6.30 a.m. Amy's family, realizing something is going on, immediately reports that they cannot find Amy to the ship's crew. 2,000 passengers are on this ship, and they ask the crew to make an announcement to assist in finding Amy, but they, the ship's crew says it's too late to make that announcement. And they finally agreed to make an announcement about Amy at about 7.50 a.m., after a majority of the passengers had already left the ship. And what they said was, quote, will Amy Bradley please come to the purser's desk? So they're basically, no one is alarmed. No one is raising the red flag that they can't find Amy Bradley. And they're letting all these passengers off the ship to God knows where. So anybody could have taken her at that time. And then left the ship with her. Around 12.15 p.m., between about 12 and 1, the ship, the cruise staff starts searching the ship. But they can't find Amy either. The Dutch Caribbean Coast Guard then conducted a four-day search that ended on the 27th of March in 1998. They also chartered a boat to continue looking for her And they used three helicopters and a a radar plane to assist in the search. They are pretty much pulling out all the stops by that point when they can't find her anywhere on the ship. But it's concerning because that's a lot of search effort. And where would this girl disappear to? Investigators in this case suspected that Amy had possibly fallen overboard or committed suicide. So they thought initially that she was one of those 200 or some odd people that go missing each year. However, she was thought to be a really strong swimmer and they never found her body in the water or any evidence of foul play. Plus, you know, she's starting a new job. She's not really indicated to anybody that she was suicidal. So that doesn't seem logical. On the morning that she disappeared, two passengers told her dad that they saw a woman who looked like Amy taking an elevator to the ship's deck with cigarettes and a lighter. This didn't ever lead to anything. Another witness 
who was a cab driver, said that he saw a woman matching Amy's description approach and said she urgently needed a phone. They never confirmed this one either. In August 1998, a Canadian computer engineer claimed that he saw Amy walking with two men on a beach in Curacao. This was five months after she disappeared. And he said the woman was constantly trying to get his attention until he lost sight of her at a nearby cafe. Evidently, this woman's tattoos matched Amy Bradley's precisely. And the men were really close to her. Like they were trying to keep her, you know, within a close distance. In January 1999, a Navy petty officer claimed to have seen a woman who looked like Amy at a brothel in Curacao. He says that she had come up to him and told him that her name was Amy Bradley and begged him to help, saying that she had been held against her will and was not allowed to leave. Evidently, this gentleman said that he did not report the incident because he feared that his career would be in danger because he'd visited a brothel. He only contacted Amy's family after he retired and saw her picture in a magazine. But again, there's no evidence at all to support this witness's claim. There was also another potential sighting in 2005. A witness named Judy Marer claimed to have seen Bradley in a department store restroom in Barbados. She she claimed that this woman entered the restroom accompanied by three men who threatened that if she didn't follow through with a deal that she would be in danger. So this woman says that after the men left, she approached this woman who said that her name was Amy and that she was from Virginia before the men re-entered and took her away. She called the authorities and they created composite sketches of the men as well as Amy based on her accounts. Recently, Amy's case has been revisited by numerous cold case people. She was on America's Most Wanted. She was on an episode of Dr. Phil. This is really kind of a sad side note on it, but in 1999, her parents got an email from this Navy SEAL soldier, Frank Jones, who said that he was a a former U.S. Army special officer and had a bunch of soldiers that worked with him, and they were going to try to rescue Amy. And he claimed that his team members had seen Amy being held by armed Colombian personnel in a housing complex. They gave descriptions of Amy's tattoos and offered information about a lullaby that Amy's mom used to sing for her. And over the course of the next few months, he kept giving them information about sightings of Amy and kept kind of dangling the carrot in front of them. And when he told them they were going to attempt a rescue, he said he needed more funds in order to do this. Yeah, it just sounds shady all the way around, but... Her family sent this guy, Frank Jones, a total of about $210,000 for Amy's search efforts. And the results from the rescue mission never came. Evidently, this Jones character made the entire story up and had scammed the Bradley family for this money. That's horrible. Yeah. In February 2002, federal prosecutors charged this guy with defrauding the Bradleys. And they also charged him with defrauding the National Missing Children's Organization of about 186000 He pled guilty in April of mail fraud and was sentenced to five years in prison. Another unrelated incident that happened that kind of gave them false hope was they found a jawbone that washed ashore in Aruba in 2010. And initially it was thought to be related to the case of Natalie Holloway, which I'm sure you're familiar with. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it was not found to belong to either one of them. An image of a young woman resembling Amy was emailed to the parents showing um, that she had been sold into sexual slavery, which is just absolutely terrifying. That was my first thought when you when you started the story is whether or not it was sex trafficking. Yeah, and they had been sent a couple of pictures that closely, very, very closely resembled Amy. And they had some assistance from organizations who attempt to track victims from sex worker sites. So there are a lot of theories out there on the internet related to Amy's disappearance. One, obviously, that we just spoke about, that she was kidnapped and sold into human trafficking in the Caribbean. This is actually supported by a lot of sources, including the key witness from the U.S. Navy officer that claimed he had been to a brothel where he saw her. And then the pictures that they received that were consistent with what Amy looked like. So many people that were saying that that, that's what they saw. Yeah. Um, This yellow character that she was hanging out with, the band member from the boat. People think that he was somehow involved in her disappearance. That somehow there's some sort of conspiracy theory that people on these boats find these victims and make a profit from selling them into sexual slavery. They also um, found that all of the pictures with Amy in them had disappeared in the photos. Because remember I told you they have photographers that go onto these ships and take pictures of people. And then they set them out on these tables and people come, you know, kind of collect memories of their family. Well, all the pictures with Amy had been removed by somebody. Shoot, wouldn't it be crazy if the photographers come on there, take pictures and send them to people to see who should be like sold? Oh, just horrifying. Just absolutely horrifying. Another scary to think of like going on vacation too, like, or taking your kids anywhere, like your younger kids. How safe are you for real? They also thought that perhaps she had been murdered on the ship and thrown overboard. And they thought that the jawbone that they found in Aruba perhaps backed that up. But there has been no real evidence that that's the case. Um, There were also theories that Amy committed suicide. And again, there was no reason to believe that that was true either. But Amy Lynn Bradley was actually declared, she was declared legally dead March 24th, 2010, 12 years after the disappearance with no witnesses and no body found. The FBI is offering a reward of up to $25,000 for any information that could potentially lead to the recovery of Amy Lynn Bradley or the conviction of anyone responsible for her disappearance. On top of this, the family is actually offering $250,000 for information leading to her safe return and $50,000 for information leading to her current location. She's actually been featured on America's Most Wanted and the television show Disappeared, as well as a whole bunch of other podcasts and different shows related to her case. Um, Renewed attention was definitely paid to her disappearance as well when Natalie Holloway disappeared in 2005. But it's a terrifically horrifying case. I mean, to think that you go onto a cruise ship and think that you're safe and you relax and have a good time and you could potentially be in danger is just a horrific thought. That's so scary. To think, and and their, that poor family, everything that they had to go through. I mean, the whole their story is crap. Like... I can't imagine what that family must be going through and, and not to have any answers. 
And there are thousands and thousands of people each day that are sold, traded, bartered for, you know, used in sexual slavery every single day around the world. And what a horrible we, life to live. I would we don't think die. about it and we don't consider the implications of it, but it is out there and it is extremely common, a lot more common than we think of, which is a horrifying thought. But it's, a, it's, it's very horrifying. There's so much garbage out there. Given the, you know, sightings of this woman and the potential photographs that they found afterwards, I have to think that she was sold into sexual slavery. Yeah, I think I agree with you. It sounds like that's what happened. They didn't find her body and then all of the all of the evidence that they have where people came forward so seeing her and matching descriptions, it really sounds like that's what happened. Very, very sad. Um, I will try to find some of those pictures and post those on Instagram um, if I can find them. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap this one up? No. Very, very sad case. And I hope that the family does find closure, although it does seem that the longer we get from this case, because this happened in 1998. Uh-huh. God, it's like I was in college back then. That could have been me. You know what I mean? It's horrifying. That could have been me. I was, what, 20? No, not even 20. I was like 18, uh, 19. Yeah, that could have been was- me. She was 23 when she disappeared. And she disappeared Monday, March 23rd, 1998. After heading to a nightclub on this cruise ship. So the Netherlands Coast Guard conducted a four-day search and found nothing. Although I don't necessarily give that a whole lot of weight. I mean, it's one body in such a huge area that finding someone who's fallen overboard must be nearly impossible. Yeah, that's true. How deep is the water there? Oh, yeah. So, in any case, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to check out our Instagram, we're at thebfdpodcast. Um, We post pictures and little stories and, and anything we can find about a particular case on there. All of the stories we've featured today, the articles and different things that we talked about on the show are featured in the show notes. I want to give a special thank you to my sister Katrina for guest hosting for the day. Thank you, Katrina. You're welcome. (laughs) And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye.